Hope you guys came expecting this morning. You feeling good? Both of you, great. Are you feeling good? Well, hey, I am expecting Jesus to speak to me and to you and for the Spirit to, to nudge us in some ways. But do you guys realize what a privilege it is we have uh, just to gather like this? We've got an incredible group of volunteers and staff. Man, the worship team, didn't they sound amazing? They don't just sound good, but they're leading us into God's presence. And you got Pastor uh, Justin and Jerry. I know Steve's been here, campus pastoring. And then uh, Paul Muma. Uh, so, so exciting. We have such a great team. And so don't take that for granted, guys. We have uh, a great group of staff that just honor the Lord and help us understand what it means to make disciples to make disciples who can reach our world. So I'm going to dive right in. All right. My wife's at this service, so I'm going to try my do my best to tell the truth in all these stories about her, okay? But we were on our very first date. Hey, first date, anyone ever have a first date not go the way you planned? Show of hands. If you're on that first date right now, probably shouldn't raise your hand. That's a little bit weird. Gonna just tell you it's not gonna end well. Okay, so don't do that. But my very first date, I, I was my wife and I was soon to be wife. I didn't know that at the point, but I was praying and thinking the whole time, when could I give her the best pickup line of all time? And so, walking in the Spirit, I'm praying during our first date, and finally, a moment arose when I knew this was the time. And so, at just the right moment, I looked deep into her eyes. I leaned in, and I gave her the greatest pickup line of all time. So you may want to write this down. You may want to thumb this down, text it. Now, if you're thinking, I don't need this, I'm already married, you do need it. It's going to revitalize your marriage, and you're going to just go to the next level. If you're single, you may go to the next level. If you want to be single, this won't help you. But okay, so here it is, and I know this works because someone in the last service told me they used the same line. So two for two, as in 100%. That's great math that even pastors can do. And so... Here's the greatest pickup line. I leaned in and I said, just so you know, I'm moving to Africa. And I did this so that she could fall into my arms. I could swoop her up and that we could just happily live ever after and ride off in the sunset. That's not what happened. I wish I was making this part up, but it's the truth. Instead, you know what she said? She didn't say, I'm going to pray about it. She didn't skip a beat. She didn't even take a breath. I said that, just so you know, I'm moving to Africa. And she said, just so you know, I'm never leaving Louisville, Kentucky. <laughs> that is her home. She didn't even say America, right? She's very specific. If you don't know about Louisville, Louisville is called the city of son-in-laws. It is Louisville, not Louisville, Louisville. So you can understand our neighbors to the south a little bit better, okay? <laughs> Things don't always go as we plan, do they? Now, you may conceptualize it in your head one way, or maybe you don't even vocalize it, but internally, a lot of times we have some expectations, we have some plans, we have some thoughts, and when it doesn't go exactly that way, what do we do? It's a pretty critical moment. Are we going to let that situation, that moment, that circumstance totally throw us a kilter and shape us and just go down this terrible different direction, or... In that moment, you have to decide, do that, or do I let God somehow, I can't even comprehend it maybe, but he is going to take that situation in that moment and somehow use it to shape me to be more like him. Said another way, whatever fills you, forms you. Go ahead, tell your neighbor, pick a neighbor and say, whatever fills you, forms you. 
Now, this time, say it like you're awake. You're the 11 o'clock service or 1030, whatever time it is. You're the second service. Bring some energy. Go to that other neighbor and say, I'm sorry, you're my second choice. But here we go. Whatever fills you, forms you. And let's say it together. Whatever fills you, forms you. And lots of things can fill us up. The bagels, the donuts, all those kind of things, obviously, relationships and tension there. And if you're in some tension right now, don't elbow them and be like, this is for you, right? Like that's not a good thing to do in church, right? But like a lot of things fill us and form us. Anecdotally, there's kind of three big categories, hurry, worry, and distraction. Generally in America, we live a pretty fast paced life. We rush, hurry up, wrap that sermon up. I got stuff to do. I got to go to lunch. I got to go here. And then I got chores to do. It's a Sunday. I got a Sabbath somehow. Squeeze that in. I get ready for work the next day. School's coming. I got to do after that shopping. Then, you know, we go and we go and we have fast paced. We go. And then we start to worry. Like, am I going too fast? Oh man, I'm stressed out. And then I start worrying, are my kids okay? Should I have kids? Should I not have kids? Where are the kids going to go? And then we worry about our finances. Do I have enough money for that? And then we, we worry about, are our 401k okay? Should you know, I invest here? Should I not invest there? Should I? We worry about all kinds of things. And then it leads to distraction. And so we start using technology to, to veg out a little bit. And it's not evil, but sometimes we can be a double-edged sword, right? And then we start wondering what's the next news update or the next stock quote or the next game that's released or the next video that's released, the next new iPhone that's released. Lots of things being released, but yet they're keeping us captive. <laughs> and so we're hurry, worried, and distracted. And man, those things start to fill us, inform us. Lots of things can so I want to suggest that how can we be intentional about what fills and forms our lives, both physically but particularly spiritually? I think this picture here has a lot of help. I'm not sure why it was blurry now. It wasn't blurry when I took it, but this is not a trick question. What do you see in this picture? This isn't one of those times where the preacher's setting you up for failure, okay? I, I'm, this is for your good. What do you see? Shout it out. Africa. Africa is not a country, it's a continent, just FYI. But yes, that is in Africa, true. Country of Uganda. What do you see? A tree. Grass. Red dirt. All correct. Good job. Give yourself a hand. You're way smarter than the first service. Okay. And so when I look at this picture, I see those things, obviously, but I see something bigger. I see space. I see margin. Margin is that thing a lot of us don't have. Margin is that space from where I currently am to where I'm going. Margin used to be that thing we used to put on paper. You remember paper and notebooks? And they would have that built-in little line. And now digitally we have it too, but you can adjust it. So you can actually squish out the margin. Anyone else ever do that? Don't lie, you're in church. I did it this morning to get all my notes on the sermon page. I wanted to squish it out so I could get it all on one page. We even squish out digital margin. <laughs> Any of your streaming services, they do this. Remember how it went from like a 30 seconds to the next episode to 15 seconds to four seconds? They are squishing out your margin. Even when you watch stuff, margin is constantly getting squished out of our lives. Yet it's in margin that we hear God's voice. So friends, it's hard for us to wonder, what is Jesus saying next? What does he want me to do? What does he want me to do in this situation or this, this struggle or even this good thing that's happening? I'm going to make sure the direction to go because I'm trying to live life all at once and it's exhausting. But margin, friends, clarifies our calling. It clarifies 
our next steps. And the word tells us that in him, in Jesus, we live and move and we have our being. So this morning, I want to help us out looking at a character who I believe is going to help us be intentional about what fills and forms us. And this character has no margin. He is running and gunning, and he's going hard. And it doesn't end well for him. So if you're wondering who that sticker is, who on the little person is on your sticker, I'm going to try to help uh, figure that out for you. But if you have a Bible or Bible app, go ahead and get that out and go to 1 Kings chapter 19 in the Old Testament. You can, if you don't know where that is, you can use it alphabetically on your phone or you can use table of contents there. And where this is the story of Elijah. Elijah is that guy running, and you're going to find out why here in a moment. He's a prophet, and a prophet's main job description is to speak out against injustice and oppression. Particularly, usually, you're on behalf of God's team, Israel in this case, but unfortunately, Ahab is the king of Israel, and he is not a good king. You may remember previously in the chapter 18, it's uh, the battle of Elijah versus the prophets of Baal. If you grew up in church, that may be a familiar story to you. If you're new, either way, go back, check it out. It's an amazing story. Use it for your quiet time this week. But here's the recap. You see in 1 Kings um, 18, there's this God duel. It's a big challenge. And the spoiler alert, what happens is they call, he says, whoever can call down fire first from heaven wins. That is a great way. When the next time you're trying to resolve some conflict, you say, whoever calls down fire first was right. It works every time, okay? And so he calls down, he calls, he prays, he prays, and fire falls. Not a metaphor, literally an amazing moment. He's on a, like just a, an, a, a crazy high. But, you know, Ahab has a wife. Her name is Jezebel. Anybody named Jezebel here? Interestingly enough, I've traveled the world. I have never found anybody named Jezebel. People name their cats Jezebel for obvious reasons, but and then for their dogs even, you know. Jezebel's not a name, and it's because she's not a nice lady. She finds out what is going on, and she's pretty ticked to say the least. I can't even say what she said because in the Hebrew it's awful, but in the English it just says she wants to kill Elijah because of what has happened. She puts a time stamp on it and says, 24 hours from now, you're going to be dead. Elijah freaks out, and the word tells us, he was afraid and ran for his life. Now, that may sound kind of common. Now, I'm, being, I'm from New Jersey, and so I'm used to having my life threatened every single day. That's just normal, okay? Here in Indiana, not as much. Elijah, not okay with having his life threatened. But it's weird, isn't it? Think about what's happened. He just had 450 prophets of Baal. He saw them lose. <laughs> He saw literal fire from heaven, major miracle, not minor miracle, like when you pray for like maybe, you know, God, help me get all green lights on the way to work or give me an A on my test or something like that. Like those are important maybe, but like this is a serious miracle, right? He's just seen this happen. And now at the first sign of difficulty, granted it's pretty serious, he freaks out and runs. Why? Say it with me. Whatever fills you, forms you. Say it again. Whatever fills you, forms you. Fear is filling and forming him. And Elijah becomes, this is why you got a sticker of it, he becomes the first ultra-marathoner. He runs 383 miles. 
takes him 40 days and 40 nights. It would take me 40 years to do that, okay? I hate running. I do it because I have to, because my kids are sucking me into it. But anyway, he takes a pit stop in between there. Angel of the Lord brings him Chick-fil-A. It's in the Hebrew. Check it out. And then he keeps on going, and he finds himself. It's about a seven-hour journey today, so that doesn't quite get you to the upper peninsula of Michigan. doesn't quite get you to the beach of Destin. He's stuck in the middle. But he gets to the mountain of God, it's called. Mount Horeb, Mount Sinai. It may be familiar if you know your Bible at all. This is the place where Moses received the Ten Commandments. It's a pretty special place. He's exhausted, though. That's a lot of running. 40 days, 40 nights. He's going, he's going, he's going. Fear is filling and forming, and now he's physically exhausted. 19.9 says, there he went into a cave and spent the night. No margin, friends. He's exhausted. He's not thinking right. And when you have no margin, almost anything, almost anybody can set you off. You ever get like a text message or an email? Or you, hey, how come not, people didn't like that video? How come they didn't like that comment? How come I don't have enough? It just start, you start going crazy over the smallest things. So God just asks him a question. 9B, Elijah, what are you doing here? Now, I don't know how you grew up. I don't know what your perspective of God is. But it's possible. Sometimes people think the God of the Old Testament is just like a rage monster. Like he's just like, when he asks that question, he's attacking them. What are you doing here, Elijah? And you picture him with like a lightning bolt in his hand, and he's just going to... I don't think that's how he's asking the question at all. It's actually not the picture of God the Scripture paints of the Old Testament. He's a God of of unfailing love, of patience. And so when he asks this question, I think it's more like when someone surprises you, like, whoa, what are you doing here? I'm not saying you can surprise God. I'm just saying I think he asked that way in order to reflect, get Elijah reflecting on, hey, what's this present moment? What's this cultural moment in your life? Let's get this stuff out because he knows right now Elijah's not in a healthy place. Elijah's letting a lot of other things fill and form him other than him. And so he listens, and here's what Elijah says. I've been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites, they've, re they've rejected your covenant. They tore down your altars. They put your prophets to death with the sword. And I'm the only one left. Which actually isn't true. Later we find out there's like 7,000 left, but he's irrational. He's exhausted. And now... Now they're trying to kill me too. <laughs> what was me? So God hits him with the lightning bolt, closes the mouth of the cave. Rubble hits the mouth of the cave. He never leaves again, and he dies there. You can look at your Bibles. This isn't a pop quiz. You can look at it. I'm not telling the truth. That's not exactly what happens at all. By mean exactly, it's not what happens at all. What does God do? This is amazing. The creator of the universe, the triune God, Yahweh, the one and only, says, I want you to learn something about me. My relational nature, I'm going to let you vent, and I'm not going to kill you. <laughs> I'm not going to strike you dead. I'm not going to make you mute. I'm not going to send those ten plagues again. <laughs> not doing it. I'm just going to let you get it out. And there's some space in the amazing nature of God, this personal nature 
that he'll let us get that out knowing that if we don't, that anger, that rage, that fear, that, that whatever it is, it'll eat us up. But he doesn't stay there. Yeah, of course, God wants us to honor him, of course. But he's just taking him on a journey here. And so God just listens. Isn't that beautiful? He's not going to leave him there. But he says, this, you're not in a healthy place right now. Your perspective's way off sitting in this cave. Now, one of the neat things that uh, my wife and I got to do when we were in Uganda, we lived way up north, uh, almost in Sudan and Congo, so pretty remote. And, but we would take ministry, like uh, short-term mission teams would come, and they'd help us with, you know, church. And, and I say church, it's nothing like, I'm talking sometimes church under a tree, literally. Sometimes it's in like a tin roof or a grass, looks like hut, okay? Like, but then we'd take them out, we wanted to see some animals, right? You want to go on safari. And so my, uh, my, like my four-wheel drive vehicle would have like seats up top and a roof rack. And so you could put some people up there that take pictures. And um, so particularly this one time, it was a bunch of college guys. And so I wanted to impress them. I wanted to make them think I was still young and cool, which I never was. And so they're up there and we're driving along on safari and we see this lion. Check it out. I wish I, that's a real picture. That's a real lion, and I am really close, okay? That's not just like a telephoto lens. I don't follow rules well, and you're supposed to stay on the road, but of course I didn't do that because I want to scare these guys to love Jesus. And I get really close to them. And so I drive up, and I'm like from here to like right there, like, okay? And I'm protected inside because I'm in the vehicle. They're on the roof. I thought the sacrifice was worth it. And so we got close, and they're, they're like, this is amazing. And so I'm like, I know, this is so cool. And the, the male, he's not the hunter. So it's like, this is great, no big deal. He's just hanging out. But out of the corner of my eye, I see something moving. And then I see this. That's the female. I don't know if you know this about lions, but the female is the hunter. You can tell. She's a little bit more alert. If you look really closely, you may see some blood in her little whiskers there, right? She's... she's has a different idea of what is how this scenario is going to play out. And so I did those guys' funeral for free. I felt like that was the right thing to do. Um, no, they were fine after much counseling. And so my point is my perspective was on the wrong thing. Elijah's in this cave, and when you're in those kind of cave moments, boy, your perspective's off. And if you've ever been in a cave, this isn't the exact cave that Elijah had, you know, but when you look at the Middle East and the mountain, uh, Mount Horeb, Mount Sinai area, these are the kinds of places that do exist. And the funny thing, when you look at that cave, oh man, the view's spectacular. <laughs> but it's pretty one way, it's pretty limited, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, you can control what comes in and what's out, but it's very limiting. You can't see beyond. And what, the funny thing is, if, you ever, if you're in a cave long enough, in a weird way, it starts to feel a little comfortable. You're kind of like, you know, this ground's not that hard. These rocks, kind of comfy. You know what? If I just kind of, you know, push them aside here, I could clean this place up. You know, it's kind of nice that I could touch both walls of my place at the same time. That's kind of handy, you know? And a cave can start to feel safe, secure comfortable. Maybe I'll just settle on in here, nuzzle in this cave. It's pretty good. 
It's not so bad. The problem is, when you're in a cave, you tend to focus just on yourself. And you miss out on the bigger perspective of what's going on outside the cave. Now, you do have some margin on your, time, on your hands here. You have some time. And Elijah has some margin. But God knows he can't leave him in that cave. And so, it's in that margin God speaks. Here's what God says. Elijah, go out. Stand at the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord's about to pass by. Then, a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks. But the Lord wasn't in the wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake. But the Lord wasn't in that earthquake. Then came fire. But he wasn't in the fire. After the fire came a gentle whisper. Now, I don't know if your parents did this for you or if you're a parent now you ever do this, but uh, I'm kind of the fourth kid in our family. I'll just confess that. And so I like to always have fun and kind of tell jokes. But like when we put our kids to bed, when they, especially when they were little, I like to kind of mess with them a little bit to see if they're actually paying attention to me and not do the same routine over and over again. And so I'd whisper sometimes just nonsense to them. I would just like before they're going to bed, I'd get really close and I'd be like, hey, listen up. Tomorrow we're going to... What? We're going to do what? Easy. We're going to go to the place and go over there. What? And then I try to make it more serious, move from fun to, I'm so glad you're my son. I'm so glad you're my daughter. Got a special plan for you. You're my favorite. No, I'm just kidding. No. <laughs> And as I thought about this story, I'm like, why does God go through all the theatrics? You know, the wind and the earthquake, the fire, you know, like, and why I whisper? Because how close do you have to be to hear a whisper? Man, you got to be cheek to cheek if you really want to be clear. I can't help but wonder, do you think God is trying to teach Elijah something here? He's saying, Come closer. You can't hear my voice very clearly all the way back here in the cave. It's interesting that if you are back in that cave, you don't hear his voice clearly in all kinds of things. You, if you're living in that, that cave of, of fear or of bitterness, or maybe you're just kind of like, this is, this is lame, this is boring, this apathy. What if he says, come closer? I mean, I love that we, we serve a God who says, that's the kind of personal relationship I want to have with you. So you can hear my voice. You can hear a whisper. But you know, our enemy, he's a liar. And he uses all the noise. Thousands of messages are hitting you every single day usually on our phones, but so many other ways. And he uses a lot to, to, to distract us and to be a noisy world. And so what does the devil do? He shouts lies at you. But then God counters it with whispers of truth. 
So the devil will shout, you're never going to change. You're never going to be as, as cool or good looking as that person. You're never going to be as successful. You're never going to get as, as that athlete. You're never going to be a mathlete. You're never going to get that job. You're never going to get into that college. You're never going to pass. You're always going to fail if that relationship is never going to change. Your economic situation is that is what it is. It's okay to be, just be bored. Be lame. Yeah, just do that. That's be better. Yep, it's, it's okay. You're the only one dealing with that. Don't tell him. These are ancient strategies the enemy uses to hold us back, hold us down, keep us from God's best. But then you know what God does? He whispers truth. You're forgiven. You're loved. You're my child. You're redeemed. You're holy. I'm going to use you in so many ways if you'll just come out of the cave. Take some steps toward me. If you're in one of those cave moments right now, hear God whisper truth to you. He wants to draw you out. He can bring some healing, some wholeness, some victory, some redemption in your life. But if I can be really honest with you, can I be honest in church? Is that okay? <laughs> Sometimes when God asks that question, what are you doing here? Have you ever gotten a little mad at God? What am I doing here? What are you doing here, God? I mean, I'm praying the prayers. I'm showing up to church. I'm even serving in kids' ministry. <laughs> Come on. And my prayers just feel like they're bouncing off the ceiling. What, am I, what are you doing are you doing your job? Do you care? Do you see my situation? And so then we usually kind of nerf it up a little bit and we sanitize it and then we'll, we'll pray and then we'll say a phrase that is a true phrase, but I think we get out of context. We'll say, you know what? I'm just going to wait on the Lord. Now, that is a very biblical phrase. It is a very important phrase. Yes, we do need to wait on the Lord. But we use it out of context. Some, so many times we use it out of anger or we use it like somehow like I'm going to run ahead of God. I am so awesome and so amazing. Like I'm going so fast. God can't keep up with me. <laughs> or some version of that perhaps. See, the Bible uses wait on the Lord very differently though. It's when you're at this key intersection of your life. When you're trying to decide, should I date you know, that guy or that girl? Should I go to this school or that school? Should I take the job, not take the job? Should I push through and, and figure out our marriage? Should I push through? Whatever that intersection is for you, you're at this key moment. When the Bible uses that phrase, it's at this massive moment. And so when the Bible says, wait on the Lord, friends, it's most often used because you're about to lose your future because of your fear. You're shaking deep down inside because you don't have control of what's about to happen next. And so you hold on, you want to hang in the cave, and you sit back. But have you ever thought about this? <laughs> what if God is saying, I know you think you're waiting on me. I'm waiting on you. I'm waiting on you to take a step of faith. 
And yes, absolutely, pray about it. Seek God's word. Seek wise counsel. Listen to the Holy Spirit's nudging. But friends, at the end of the day, you and I have to make a Christ-like decision and take a bold step of faith. So Psalm 119 tells us, your word's a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. One of our mentors for Eric and I used to say, God doesn't shine a floodlight. He shines a flashlight. Just to give us the next step or two. And that's what we see happens here. Elijah is getting called out to take a couple baby steps of faith. Look what scripture tells us. He asks a question again. God says, what are you doing here, Elijah? Again, not in that lightning bolt, I'm going to get you Zeus kind of way. But this time he asked it, I believe, what are you doing in this location? Dude, you can't be who I've called you to be if you're back here living in a cave. I've got so much more for you out here. Come on out. The view is spectacular. So what does God say to him? It says, Elijah stood at the mouth of the cave. He steps out. And then go back the same way you came. He ends up anointing three other guys' lives. But don't miss that part. He has them go back the same way. Friends, there's some junk that we have to deal with in our lives. And we'd rather just forget about it, pretend it didn't happen, delete it. Like, how do I hide that? Um, if you're a guy like me, you probably want to brush it under the rug and just be like, I don't want to deal with that. Can, God, can we just like, no, but God says, I want to take you through it. I want to bring victory. And don't miss, because Elijah's obedient and he, and he goes. Three other people received their calling. Hazel and Jehu, which we're going to do a whole series, 16 weeks on those two guys. Aren't you excited? Woo! That's a joke. Okay, we're not doing that. But the guy you probably have heard of is Elisha. He becomes a successor of Elijah. And the scripture tells us he had a double portion of God's spirit on him. Do these guys receive their calling, their next steps? I don't know. But we do know that because Elijah took a step of obedience... Man, their lives are forever changed. Have you ever thought about how your yes to Jesus opens the door for others? Friends, here's a kingdom principle, kingdom truth, that whatever Jesus does in you is never just for you. It's always for the benefit of others. There's a multiplication effect, a ripple effect that takes place. It's not just about you. Jesus wants to do something in and beyond you, friends. And it gives us an urgency to do the Great Commission. Some have called it the Everyday Commission, Matthew 28. Right here in Noblesville, in your schools, on your sports teams, at your job, and around the world. It's not an either or, it's a both and. Friends, there's people, there's people right here. You may have shown up today and not know Jesus. You're just kicking the tires on him going, like, what is all this about? We're so glad you're here. We hope you invite him into your life today. There's also... Three billion people around the world who don't have access to Jesus, friends. And of that, it's called the 1030 window. Ages 10 to 30 make up over 60% of the world's population. And they have access to everything. All kinds of music and videos and things that are going to fill them, inform them, and lead them far away from God. 
Isn't that our mission? Helping people find their way, what? Back to God. Because we believe in our heart, we were made for this home. We're coming back home. So Elijah says yes. And God uses his life to be multiplied. He fills him, he forms him, and then he sends him. And friends, as we wrap up today, I want you to get that rock out. If you don't have it yet, go ahead and get one. If you haven't thrown it, thank you for not doing that. I really appreciate that. But I want you to start looking at that rock. Feel a little bit. Hold it. But one of the neat things is that when you start following Jesus, you don't just get saved from your past. He starts... Holy Spirit starts filling your life and he starts examining you and if you'll spend some time with him, have some margin, he'll start examining your life a little bit and he'll kind of lift the cover off of your life and as you walk and go to small group and read your Bible and pray and do these other things, it's not about the doing, it's about spending time with him and as you spend time, he may start reaching into your life and addressing some things. Some things that seem pretty small, you may not even notice them, but they're there. And I don't know what that rock in your hand might represent for you. I know over the years, one of the big ones was relationships. Am I being the kind of godly guy I need to be? Not. Are these good friends? Are these not? Am I dating the right person? Not. Am I, God, God will I trust you enough with all of my relationships. Maybe it's a work group. That person drives me nuts. You don't know. I mean, <laughs> if you can't think of someone, maybe you're that, well, you can fill in the blank. Maybe he would, it's relationships. I know another one for me was, was money. Got to make that money. Got to get paid. <laughs> Got to provide. It's true. Does it have a hold on you? You don't really want to trust him with that, that amounts, or I don't know, maybe there's something else. That was one I had to give him, I know. And he kept reaching in, and do you trust me with your kids? That's hard, Jesus. Okay. And as you keep going, keep walking, he keeps bringing different things to the surface. Is it your career? You're calling a decision. Maybe it's a secret sin. And these all seem tiny, right? I mean, no one knows. You can barely see them. Don't be ridiculous, John. Come on. They're not really hurting me. Okay. But you know what? Water's life-giving. You don't need a PhD to tell you rocks or not. <laughs> rocks don't bring life. They just take up space. And they hold you back from God's best. But when you give up control, when you make room for Jesus to show up, for his spirit to fill and form you, you lay those things down. And his Holy Spirit fills you back up. He doesn't leave you just empty-handed. He doesn't just leave you with gaps and says, good luck, figure it out. He says, no, I'm going to fill you with more and more of me. And he fills you up to overflowing. 
and we begin to look more and more like him. So what I want you to do is I want you to go ahead and stand up. Take your rock in your hand. And in a moment, we're going to sing together. And I'm going to invite you to respond. And now, you may have not grown up with this kind of thing, and this may be your first time here, or you don't even know Jesus, and that's okay. This is not a, a shame or a pressure thing. If, if you're not sensing uh, that you need to lay something down or that God's Holy Spirit is nudging you, or maybe you wouldn't even know how to quantify that, that's quite all right, friends. You can just leave the rock under your chair or behind there. This is not a pressure thing. It's not a shame thing. But there is also something very powerful when you can kind of name whatever that thing is, or maybe it's multiple things that you know you've been, you don't want to surrender to God. You don't want to give, you don't want Jesus to in that part of your life. <laughs> and friends, this has got to be one of the safest rooms on the planet of brothers and sisters who love you and want to encourage you in your faith, in your walk with him, to make disciples, to make disciples. And so there's something powerful about coming forward and just laying it down, to putting it a moment in time. So if the Spirit nudges you, we're going to invite you to come forward as we sing in a moment and just lay down whatever that rock represents for you. Maybe it's small, maybe it's massive. And don't pick it back up tomorrow when you go to work, <laughs> but leave it there. And let Jesus fill you, form you, and send you. Let's pray together. Jesus, thank you for these men and women. And we're inviting your Holy Spirit to do what only you can do, to, to nudge us, to respond, God. If there's some things that we need to give to you, God, we don't want to miss a moment to respond to your nudging. And so as we sing, God, we want to, we want to surrender. We want to say, God, however you want to use me, I'm there. And if there's these things holding me back, I'm giving them to you. We love you, Jesus, in your name. Amen.